Good morning, I'm John. I want to add my welcome and thanks for joining us here for worship today. Um, God's already been engaging with us and I'm sure he'll be continuing to do that as we open his word together. Uh, I've done something in recent months I've never done before. My wife and I are doing some work in our house, we're having some work done. And in order to get the work done that we needed to get done, we needed to move stuff out of the way. So I rented a storage unit. I've never done that before. We rented a storage unit, and so for the last couple months, I've been taking loads of stuff into the storage unit. And as I've been there, I've watched other people putting things in and taking things out of their storage units, and there's been furniture, Christmas decorations, there's been uh, sound systems, I've seen plumbers come in who must keep it for their business. Uh, On a really nice day, there was a nice sports car that backed out of one uh, storage unit that was right next to me. And of course, there are good reasons why we may need to rent a storage unit to keep our stuff. But overall, the storage unit industry in our country speaks pretty loudly to the amount of stuff we have, doesn't it? Uh, and I, I looked online just to see what it does. And in, in January of 2021, a report came out that says we have in our country right now, 49,000 storage units in in the United States of America with an annual industry revenue of $39.5 billion to keep our stuff. Um, And it says that 10.6% of U.S. households rent storage units. So that's just 10.6% of us who keep some stuff there. For the rest, there are basements and attics and garages and spare rooms and wherever else we put the stuff that we need to have. And the real irony is, is that we say we own stuff, but doesn't stuff really own us? I mean, we, we say we own this, but we need to care for it, keep it up, worry about it, store it someplace, take care of it. Um, and that's true of everything. It's true of our investments. It's true of our, uh, our bank accounts. It's true of our houses, our possessions, our cars. We, we have this stuff and their obligations that come along with it. This is nothing new, but Christians have long tried to figure out how do we relate to this? How do we relate the stuff we have, the wealth that we have, and the faith that we have that calls us to sacrifice everything for the cause of the gospel? One extreme, we find Christians who say, you need to just enjoy everything the world has to offer. Don't worry about it. If you can get it, get it and enjoy it because God wants you to enjoy this life. And then at the other extreme, we have ascetics who who say you need to deny yourself any worldly pleasure and not have anything of value in your life. Jesus addressed this issue often in his teaching, talked about money, talked about possessions, the values that we have. And one of those instances, which we're going to look at today, if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, this is a parable that comes in the middle of a section of Jesus' teaching that's pretty somber. Uh, Luke chapter 12 is not a real upbeat section. Jesus is giving some really heavy, heavy teaching to the people who are listening. The path of faith is not easy, and he wanted his followers to know that. And so phrases like, be on your guard, don't be afraid, be dressed and ready for service, give this chapter a sense of urgency, that Jesus is calling his followers to be ready for action. So now let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and then we'll walk through this parable together. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me judge over you to decide things such as that? 
Then he said, beware, Be, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told the story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for many years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night and who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have wealth in relationship to God. So this parable flows out of a question from someone in the crowd, asking Jesus about his inheritance, about how to divide this estate. Now, it was not uncommon for people in the first century Middle East to seek out rabbis for all kinds of questions. Rabbis' wisdom and teaching wasn't just restricted to religious teaching. So this would not be an uncommon kind of question for someone to ask a rabbi. We don't know the details of this man's father's estate and how it was supposed to be divided and how it was divided. Jesus doesn't seem to really give a lot of care to the details because he sees something different. Even though Jesus could have spoken into it, he could have been an arbitrator for this man and, and helped to solve this issue in his life. But as Jesus often did, he didn't want to solve the presenting issue. He looked beyond it to the heart of this man. He looked beyond it to what really was going on in this man's heart and soul and wanted to speak to that. And in doing so, speaks to the same kinds of things that can go in our go on in our minds. So settling the issue of this man's estate would do nothing for the greater question of what this man was seeking. Where am I going to find meaning and value and worth? How am I going to get along without these things? How am I going to get along without these possessions? How do these possessions relate to the higher purposes of life? Jesus in verse 15 said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Jesus' words are a really stern warning to this man, a really stern warning. The heart motivation this guy was dealing with was a trap, and that trap is greed. Greed can never be satisfied. Greed is, greed is this all-consuming, insatiable desire for more. And the more you get, the more you think you need. The more you get, the more you think you need. We always need to be on guard for this lust for more. And it's what we're bombarded with in our culture, isn't it? All of the advertising and social media and commercials we have and all the magazines we look at and everything tells us you need more and this is how your life is going to be better. But greed is never satisfied. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 points out that greed is actually a form of idolatry. That when we give in to greed, when we, when we pursue more and more of what this earth offers, what this life offers to give us meaning and worth and value, that we actually are substituting that desire for God. And we're, we're idolaters. The meaning and fulfillment of life would not have been found for this guy in the inheritance. Now, the author of this gospel had three Greek words that he could have used for life when Jesus said, life is not measured by how much you own. And I'll just, to transliterate those, one would be bios, which would be referring to how many, how much stuff you have, what kind of life you live, how long you live, the, the tangible stuff of life, which how much stuff you have would, would be part of that. 
Psyche would be another word for life, which refers to the values that you have, your personhood, your relationships. But the word that Luke uses here is zoe. And zoe refers to life, to the life that we have in Christ. Zoe refers to the life that can never be satisfied with stuff. It's the life that's not measured by anything on this planet. It's not in the economy of this world. It's in the economy of God. And it, we don't find it by accumulating things. So then Jesus jumps into the story. And verse 16 is where the parable begins. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. That's the start of the story. Uh, it's important to note some things right off the bat. First of all, this farmer already had great wealth. He doesn't say there was a poor man who had a fertile farm. No, it was a wealthy man, a rich man. He already had plenty. And we also see that his fertile farm produced great crops. Successful farmers, no one work hard, but you get ahead in the game if, you're, if your soil is good. When I, I grew up in a small farm town in central Illinois and around us, there were, there were some farms that were sandy farms and boy, you had to keep watering those and watering them and watering to produce anything because they didn't hold any water. And other areas that were more river bottom soil, which was always moist, even in the times of drought. And those farmers really, really had it good because they could, they could almost always raise a good crop. And it's a lesson for all of us, even the fortunes that we come into in our careers or in our lives. Sometimes we think it's because of our skill or because of our business acumen. And it might be partly that, but we all know people, I mean, you take two great businessmen or businesswomen who have equal skill and equal acumen, and one has an opportunity and a door's open before them and they walk through it and they get, they have a, a greater fortune than the other. And that's just because of where we are in life. And it should keep us all humble, but this man didn't get that in this story. Instead, he saw it as being about him. He saw it as being something that he needed to do. He was already doing well, and now he gets his bumper crop, and it only adds to his problems. Let's jump into verse 17. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This bumper crop that comes in is going to rot if he doesn't have a place to store it safely. So he devises a scheme because his barns weren't big enough to tear down the barns he has and to build bigger barns so that he could store all of this, which is not a bad scheme on its own, not a bad solution, but it comes with a great price tag, one that he's not really looking to. And you can see it in his words. The self-absorption is, is it? obvious, isn't it? What should I do? I don't have room for my crops. Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, he even starts talking to himself. That's how self-absorbed he is. He's going to figure this out between him and himself. Um, my friend, I have enough stored away for years. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It's all about him. All about him finding meaning and worth and satisfaction and security because of the big barns that hold all of his grain. He gave no thought to God. He gave no thought to the greater good of humankind. He gave no thought to anyone else who might be in need. Rather, a life of hedonism, a life of pleasure, a life of pursuit of his own, his own pleasure, his own satisfaction in life was all that he could find. 
In verse 20, something happens. It doesn't happen in a lot of parables. God shows up in the story. God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night and who will get everything you work for? So this dramatic twist, God is in the story speaking to one of the characters in the parable and, and basically says, speaks to his utter folly of thinking that he has any control over life at all. That, that he can even be the one who can say what tomorrow will bring or that he can take it easy in the weeks and years to come. Life is uncertain for all of us. None of us have tomorrow promised. There have been times in my life and ministry where I've sat by the bedside of someone who's been on hospice care and maybe had a few days or a few weeks to live. And, and I remember more than once as I've talked to them, prayed with them and helped them to be ready to go to see the Lord after they die. And then I leave and I get in my car and I'm, the thought hits me. It's like, you know, they may have a week, a couple days left, but I'm getting in a vehicle and getting on an interstate with all kinds of other vehicles. I, I could get in an accident and I could beat this person to heaven. There's a, I don't have tomorrow promised. None of us does. That should, that should speak volumes to how we do relationships, to how we serve God, to the urgency with which we invest in God's kingdom and in his work. What a fool this man was. The ESV, uh, English Standard Version, I think captures the punch better than any other uh, version. It's just fool. And, and in the Greek, as in many languages, word placement matters. So you put the most important thing first. This night, tonight, not maybe tomorrow. You don't have time to think about it. Right now, your life is demanded of you. And it's not a passive dying. It's not you're going you're gonna to die a long, slow death or you're going you're gonna to face the, the misguided notion of your beliefs about money. It's like, no, tonight. God is calling the debt in. In fact, the, the deuterocanonical book of wisdom, which is not in our canon, but for example, the Roman Catholic Bible canon has the book of wisdom, and we don't have it in our canon as inspired scripture, but it's still a, 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 re, a valuable ancient resource. But I like how they describe this. They describe life as a loan that must be returned to God. At some point, we're going to have to return this loan to God. And what God is saying in this parable is, Call in the loan in right now, friend. Call in the loan in because you've been investing in the wrong places. So when this man dies, his vast accumulation, the huge barns that stored all of his stuff, mean nothing to him. And our possessions don't. There's a story of Queen Elizabeth I when she was, when she was dying that some of her attendants were gathered around her and heard her say, it's kind of a rumored story, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but um, heard her say, all of my possessions for a moment of time. All of my possessions for a moment of time. But can't we resonate with that when it gets right down to it? And if you knew that life was going away, what, what else? You can't pay for it. And that's Jesus' point. This is a different economy. You can't buy time with money. You can't buy life's purpose with money. You can't buy life's possessions. And, and maybe it's not just money. It's life experiences. It's what this world economy brings to us. The things that this world offers just will not provide the purpose that we're really looking for. Augustine once said when he was looking at this parable, he did not realize this man that the bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. 
The bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship to God. You could be the richest person on this planet if you don't have, if you don't have a rich, deep relationship with God. You have nothing. And there's not necessarily anything more spiritual about having less things. Let's get that clear. You could not have a lot compared to other people, but the things you have, you cling to, and you find your value and worth in. That's the point here. It's not compared to who are you, rich or poor. It's if you cling to your possessions and the things that this world offers, and in that you want to find meaning and hope and your security, then you've lost. Where are we finding meaning and purpose? Are we caring for the poor? Are we investing? Are we supporting the missions outreach of our church to, to send missionaries to where the gospel has yet to be heard around the world and people are dying because no one's taken the gospel to them? Are we investing in, in the ministries our church has right here in our community to get into North St. Louis City with Bridge of Hope, to go across the street to Carmen Trails? Are we, are we finding ways even in our own, without even going through our church, just people in our world people in our worlds who are in our, in our circle of relationships who have needs? Are we going there and investing in them in our, with our money, with our time, with our resources? A wealthy spiritual life is one of deep devotion, deep prayer, deep obedience, and deep service to God, where everything we have belongs to Him. Having a rich relationship with God is about putting your trust in Him for meaning and purpose and value. If you're resting secure in your bank account, in your possessions, in your investment, if you're resting secure in your zip code, if you're resting secure in how other people think about you, you're at risk right now. You're at great risk right now. All that could go away tomorrow. All that could go away tonight. If you devote yourself to knowing God, to following him, defining your worth and value and purpose in him and to give him everything, to sign everything over to him to be used for him, by him, as he needs it and in ways that we see around us, then you could lose everything else that this world has and you're just stay stable and your goal will be met. Retirement planning has become a big deal in our culture, hasn't it? Um, it's hard to get away from messages that are helping us to know that we need to be planning for retirement. And the subtle underlying message of a lot of the advertisements that we see for retirement planning is about how, how dangerous it would be if you don't have money set aside to live those last years of your life, to have fun, to travel, to do what you need to do, to not have to worry, to not have to exert yourself. That's kind of the underlying message. We could have a whole other sermon on what the Bible does or doesn't say about retirement, by the way. We're not going to go there. But, and, and certainly it's wise to plan for the future. It's wise to think, even financially, how am I going to take care of my family? I'm not saying we shouldn't plan. But wouldn't it be interesting if every life insurance commercial or every financial planning commercial or every commercial selling some big investment would have a little um, disclaimer on the bottom that would say, be on guard, life is not measured by how much you own. I mean, if we just could be honest and say, wow, life is not measured by how much we own. 
And while we're here, let me, let me address those of you. And I know we have many in our church who work in these kinds of industries and financial planning, insurance, and investments, and in other, other related areas where you're helping people deal with investments, with spending money, with buying things, and with acquiring things, and with managing things that will give some kind of security. And I just want to encourage you as a follower of Christ, you are on the front line of disciple making and evangelism. Because if, if you're working with a client or clients that, that are followers of Christ, you have an opportunity to help them in this area to say, hey, not only should we prepare for this world, but how am I helping you to prepare for God's kingdom? How am I helping you to invest in the work of God? And for those people that aren't followers of Christ, how wonderful to be able to even plant little seeds to put hope that there's more there's, there's something even more secure than your insurance policy or your investments or your home or whatever it is. So just know that you're in a valuable place serving God, and we want to recognize that. We want to help people everywhere to have a rich relationship with God. So let me share a story as I close that I think illustrates this really, really well, a story from history. John Wesley was an Anglican pastor in 18th century England, founded, launched Methodism, uh, and determined, he was determined because he grew up in a large family, very poor family. His dad was a pastor, many siblings. He was determined not to replicate the poverty of his family of origin. So he worked hard, studied hard, got, in, got into school. He became a professor at Oxford um, University, was later elected a fellow at Lincoln College at Oxford University, and his career path was looking great. He was, he was earning money. He was not going to live like his family in poverty. Life was going well for John Wesley. And one day, he had finished paying for some pictures that he wanted to hang in his room where he lived, and so he bought these pictures. He went home. It was a cold day, and he went home, and he was putting the pictures away, and the chambermaid who did the cleaning and took care of the building and the room that he stayed in came by, and he noticed that she didn't have a coat, and it was very cold. And so he was moved to give her money to buy a coat, and so he reached in his pocket to get the money to give her to buy a coat, and he re realized then that he didn't have money to give her to buy a coat because he bought these pictures to decorate his room. That made a huge impact in John Wesley's mind and heart. He was really, really guilt-ridden that he had, he had bought these pictures so that they could hang in his room so he could have something nice to look at, but this woman who was working hard for him didn't have a coat. So that and other factors going on in his life led him to really formulate some, some principles of how to deal with God's money, how to, how to serve God and help the poor with the money that God's given to us. And over his life, his income increased more and more and more, but his spending reflected the priority that I think Jesus was getting to in this parable. I'm going to show you a, a chart now that will explain what happened in John Wesley's life. The first year after this encounter, he was, his income was 30 pounds a year, which was not a bad income in England in the 18th century for a single guy. His living expenses were 28 pounds, and he gave two pounds to the poor, 7% of his income. The next year, his income went up to 60 pounds, and his living expense, and this is really the key to this, isn't it? Uh, stayed at 28 pounds, and so his giving to the poor went to 32 pounds, or 52% of his income. The third year, his income went to 90 pounds, remained 28 pounds living expense, and now he was giving 69% of his income to the poor. The fourth year, 120 pounds, 92 pounds 
to the poor. And then later years, he was making over 1,400 pounds a year. His living expense went up to 30 pounds. He was living on 2% of his income and over 98% of his income went to the poor. Isn't that amazing? Over 98% of his income went to the poor. And he did it because he said, that's what God calls us to. That's what Christians are supposed to do. We're not supposed to build wealth here, are we? John Wesley defined wealth as the position or the possession of money beyond what's needed for food and clothes. Beyond what's needed for food and clothes. And, and he was kind of a hardline guy on this. In fact, he said, anything you keep beyond what you need for food and clothes, you've stolen from God. He even encouraged his followers who were very poor to give. Now, it's easy to say that John Wesley was a, kind of an extremist here, isn't it? And maybe he was. I, I would just ask to at, evaluate whether we think he's an extremist because of what the Bible says or because of what we have. I mean, let's just be honest because I can be uneasy and I can say, come on, don't be such a hard guy on this. But what's the Bible say about what we have? But let's loosen it up a little bit. Let's, let's say John Wesley, great principal, but man, he's a hard, hardline guy on this. So let's loosen it up a little bit. I think the point's still valid. Beyond food, clothing, a place to live, transportation, healthcare, even a modest rainy day fund, where are we investing our time, our money, our ambition, and our trust? Where beyond those kinds of things that could be called in our culture a basic self-care stuff, if someone watched our lives carefully or looked at our financial ledgers, where would they say we're putting our hope for purpose and meaning in life? Would they say, wow, those first three people... They know how to invest in God. Or, yeah, they, they kind of need bigger barns and keep building bigger barns. Now, always dangerous here. Always dangerous whenever we talk about this because you do what I do. We start comparing, don't we? Well, but I don't know what he has or I don't know what she has. So at least I'm doing a little bit better. Don't do that. This isn't about comparing. This isn't about looking at anyone else around you. This is about you and God right now saying, all right, God, help me, and, and Holy Spirit, convict me, teach me, where, where am I holding too much here where I ought to be investing in your kingdom? How am I doing? And let's just allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us as men and women, as young people, as families about this. The last thing that I'll say is that some people have less of this world's wealth than what otherwise they could have because they're lazy. That's true, right? Some people have less of this world's wealth than what they could otherwise have because they're lazy. They just don't work hard. Other people have less of this world's wealth than they otherwise could have because of some kind of catastrophe or setback in their life. Something has happened, illness, accident, catastrophe, and they just don't have what this world offers. Other people have less of this world's wealth than they might otherwise have because they've chosen instead to be rich in relationship with God. Let's be those people. Let's be people who have less than what we might otherwise have because we've chosen to be rich in our relationship with God.
And in doing so, we've made an impact for his gospel in our community and around the world. Let's pray and ask God to do that. Father, this is a tough parable, a tough parable for us because we live in a we live in a rather affluent area and culture and, and even nation. And so I pray that you would take these words of this parable and help us to not compare to other people, not to look at anybody or think of anybody maybe has more or less than we do, but to just give your Holy Spirit a chance. These moments and this song and this day and days and weeks to come to ask, are we, are we building bigger barns, putting security and trust here, or instead are we investing in God, in your kingdom, in your purpose? Help us to do that. And I pray that the, the results will be seen eternally in people's lives being changed and people here in our community, right here in West County and in St. Louis City and in our region and around the world, knowing Jesus Christ because we, we scale back on something we could do in order to invest in you and your kingdom. Make it happen for your glory. Amen.